Another group of hostages kidnapped by Hamas was just released. The lead starts right now. After more than 50 days held captive by Hamas, 11 more hostages are free tonight as Israel and Hamas agree to pause fighting another two days, meaning even more hostage releases to come. And the only Israeli man released by Hamas so far has a dual Russian-Israeli citizenship. Why him? And how did he spend four days on the run in Gaza? Was his release a Hamas favor to Vladimir Putin? Plus, the Palestinian prisoners who Israel is letting go and the two-tiered justice system for many of them that led to so many of them being held without trial in the first place. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper. Also this hour, we're gonna to get to that major arrest of the man that police say shot those three college students in Vermont. The suspect was in court today. The college students were speaking English and Arabic at the time of Saturday's shooting, wearing the traditional Palestinian keffiyeh scarves, a shocking apparent hate crime. New details in that case ahead. Well, we start with breaking news. A fourth group of hostages freed by Hamas now back safely in Israel. A spokesman for the Israel Defense Forces says all 11 citizens are Israeli, although it's not yet clear if any of them are dual citizens. The Hostages and Missing Persons Forum says the freed hostages are 12-year-old Eitan Yahalomi, Sharon Cuneo and her three-year-old kids Emma and Yuli, Karina Engel and her kids 18-year-old Mika and 11-year-old Yuval, 16-year-old Sahar Calderon and 12-year-old Erez Calderon, and 16-year-old Or Yaakov and 13-year-old Yagil Yaakov. I spoke to the mother of Or and Yagil on October 8th, the day after the attack. She was listening to her sons on the phone when they were kidnapped. You might remember that horrible story. It's so great that they're back with her. Now that this group of hostages has been released, the Israel-Hamas pause will be extended by an additional two days. Under the same conditions, that means another 20 hostages are expected to be freed. These newly freed hostages join 58 others who have been released in recent days. That includes 40 Israelis and four-year-old American Israeli Abigail Eaton. She was orphaned in the October 7th terrorist attacks when Hamas murdered her parents in cold blood, Roy and Smadar Eaton. Let's get straight to CNN's Jeremy Diamond. He's at the Karim Shalom border crossing at the intersection of Israel, Gaza, and Egypt. Jeremy, what are you seeing uh, where you are right now? Well, Jake, we just witnessed a very, very dramatic scene. Uh, three helicopters came very close to our location, and we actually saw them go directly to the Karim Shalom crossing, uh, landing right there. I'm going to have uh, my cameraman Byron here zoom in on that location where we can actually still see at least one of those helicopters. We saw some buses getting very close to those helicopters, uh, and I'm now told, Jake, that indeed those hostages are crossing at the Karim Shalom crossing, and they will shortly shortly board helicopters towards uh, hospitals in Israel. Now, what's really interesting about this, Jake, is that it appears that this crossing happened simply between Gaza directly into Israel. Typically, we see those images of uh, the, the Red Cross vehicles heading to the Rafah crossing, crossing into Egypt, and then driving the, that less than two miles through Egypt to the Karim Shalom crossing and then coming into Israel. But now Israeli officials are already confirming that those hostages are indeed 
on Israeli territory, accompanied by the military. And again, we saw those helicopters coming in very low, two transport helicopters, one that looked very similar to a Black Hawk helicopter, and then landing directly at this Karim Shalom crossing. So I suspect that very soon we will see those helicopters once again taking off and heading in the direction of what we are told is Ichilov Hospital, which is uh, one of uh, the hospitals in Israel that is prepared to receive these hostages. We have watched, Jake, obviously over the course of the last several days as a couple of different modalities have been employed for these hostages to cross into Israel. Yesterday was the first day that they actually crossed directly from the Gaza Strip into Israel. At the time, we were told that was in part due to the uh, urgent medical condition of one of those newly released hostages over the previous Previous days they had gone into Egypt first, but now once again, Jake, it appears going directly from Gaza into Israel now at this Karim Shalom crossing right behind us. And Jeremy, what can you tell us about these 11 hostages? Well, Jake, most of these 11 hostages uh, come from that near Oz uh, uh, kibbutz uh, in southern Israel, where uh, uh, dozens of uh, people were kidnapped from that kibbutz uh, and taken into the Gaza Strip. Uh, we have the names of several of these hostages, and there are a number of children. Uh, ranging from the age of three up until 16, 18 years old, uh, all of these hostages. Uh, we have a statement also from the head of the Nero's kibbutz who says that the, the news this evening brings a sigh of relief to our community. However, we remain deeply concerned about our loved ones that are still held hostage. And that is, of course, a reminder, Jake, that for every hostage who is released, there are still hostages who are still remaining in Gaza. And that will be the key, Jake, as we watch how this develops over the coming days with this truce now being extended by an additional two days. Hamas said to release 10 civilian hostages for each of those days. How much further can they keep going? We know that Hamas does not hold all of the hostages inside of Gaza. In fact, several are being held, uh, dozens are being held, in fact, by other militant groups. In fact, tonight, the Israeli military confirmed that Kfir Bibas, that 10-month-old, the youngest Israeli hostage being held inside the Gaza Strip, is being held by another militant group. So a lot of questions about Hamas's ability to wrangle these hostages and to return them uh, to Israel as part of this agreement. Jake? All right, Jeremy Diamond, thanks so much. I want to bring in CNN's Oren Lieberman now. He's in Tel Aviv. Uh, Oren, today's release was delayed by hours. Um, why? What were the issues holding it up? Jake, the fundamental issue here was over the list of hostages to be released. Israel has demanded as part of the agreement that families are kept together, and that is an issue Israel says Hamas violated uh, over the course of the past several days by separating a daughter from her mother, Hila, from her mother, Raya. And that led to its own series of issues, roadblocks, and delays that eventually took time to work through. From what we're hearing, it was the same sort of issue, who was on the list, who was not on the list, that caused a delay today. Still, this isn't on par with what we saw over the weekend, where there was risk of the deal collapsing. It wasn't that grave a danger to the overall deal, but it obviously shows the friction taking place in these exchanges. Uh, and as part of this truce and how fragile this all can be, the effort it took, I apologize, my light being a little finicky there, the light, the, the effort it took to get this across the line and to keep this going, uh, especially with the, uh, with the challenges on the ground there. Uh, Oren, what do we know about this two-day extension of this pause in fighting? Could, could it go past that? Could it become uh, three days, even four? 
What's critical here is the arrangement for when they have this pause in fighting. Israel said from the very beginning it would take the release of 10 Israeli hostages for another day of a pause in fighting. Now, it's crucial to note that this is specific to women and children. At least as of the numbers released earlier today from the Israeli Prime Minister's office, there are still, and this is before today's release, I should note, 52 women and 14 children. So there is at least, in principle, enough hostages under this agreement to keep this pause going for a few more days. It's also worth noting that when Israel put out their list of hostages held in Gaza, the number was 300. That's twice the initial agreement for 150, which means at least that Israel is preparing for the possibility of an extension as well. Still, Qatar only announced, and we've only heard from Hamas, Egypt, and others, 48 hours of an extension right now. To keep that going, it probably will take another massive diplomatic effort. Uh, in Tel Aviv, thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN's Alex Marquardt. And Alex, have U.S. officials given any indication when they think the nine Americans uh, who they believe are being held by Hamas, nine Americans might be released? Well, they're certainly hoping, Jake, that two American women will come out uh, in the next two days. There was an expectation that during this four-day pause that three Americans would get released. One of them was young Abigail Edan, the four-year-old. Um, and then they had hoped that by today you'd have these two American women because this deal, of course, was for uh, women and children. That did not happen. And that is one of the reasons uh, that, we've, that you know, the Biden administration is really pushing uh, for this extension. John Kirby, the, the White House spokesman for the National Security Council, he confirmed just a short time ago on CNN uh, that today's release would not see any more Americans released. Here's a little bit more of what he had to say. We are working very, very hard to keep this flow of hostages going. We're glad to see that there's a two-day extension, and we certainly would hope uh, that in the next two days, uh, in this next uh, couple of installments, that we'll see some Americans coming out. Uh, but it's difficult to know for sure, day-to-day, -day, uh, exactly how, how Hamas is making these decisions. So, Jake, the hope is two more Americans in, in the next two days. Uh, you have to imagine that the U.S. is pressing Hamas via Qatar and Egypt to release these Americans. Certainly, Hamas knows how valuable uh, these American prisoners are. And then it, there's a question of the seven others who are men. And Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, said that by tonight, they are expecting an update from Hamas as to the conditions uh, of those seven American men, whether they're alive or not, what medical condition they're in. Jake, we should note that at least three of these seven, we believe, um, have something to do with the Israeli, Israeli military, whether uh, they're a reservist, which we believe one is, and, and two are uh, IDF soldiers. We believe that will make uh, negotiations much more complicated down the line. Yeah, I mean, but you've got to believe Hamas is playing with fire there, holding on to those Americans for so long. Uh, what role did the U.S. play in this agreement announced by Qatar to extend this pause, this humanitarian pause, uh, between Israel and Hamas in the Gaza Strip for these additional two days? A, a pivotal role, a really central one. This is something that the U.S. has been pushing for since the very beginning of this pause. Uh, they said that the deal was designed so in order to incentivize Hamas to, uh, to release more prisoners. Uh, very simple deal. Uh, you get another Not prisoners, day. They're Hostages. Hostages. Absolutely, they're hostages. Um, th that if you get another day of pause, essentially, uh, for every 10 hostages uh, released. And, and so we know that the president himself has been uh, intimately involved. He has been uh, speaking with his counterparts over the weekend, uh, speaking with the emir of Qatar as well. Um, as the prime minister uh, of, of Israel. So at, at all levels, really, from the president on down, 
uh, the, the, the U.S. has been very involved in, in, pu in, in pushing this. And, and as you've noted, the U.S. is hoping that this extension in the pause goes beyond these two days so that more hostages can be released, so that more aid can get in. Yeah. One wonders, though, how long uh, President Biden's patience can last. And Israel's. And Israel's. Yeah. All right, Alex Marquardt, thanks so much. It's been a remarkable four days full of anticipation, drama, some disappointment, also some jubilation uh, as we await more reunions of hostages with their families. Those already reunited are sharing in moments of joy and relief. It was a particularly excruciating weekend for the families of the hostages being held by Hamas. Once the temporary pause between Israel and Hamas began, many of them hoping, praying that their loved ones would be the ones released. Among the first wave of hostages freed, nine-year-old Ohad Munder, seeing his father for the first time in this emotional video. He was kidnapped from kibbutz near Oz with his mother, Karen, and 78-year-old grandmother, Ruth, as well as his grandfather. Another emotional moment, nine-year-old Emily Hand reuniting with her father, who previously thought she'd been killed by Hamas. All weekend, many Americans were holding out hope that four-year-old Israeli-American Abigail Eden would be released. Both of her parents had been murdered by Hamas on Kibbutz Kfar Aza. And on Sunday, she was finally freed in the third round of hostage releases. Also included in that third wave, the Brodich family. Hagar Brodich was kidnapped from Kfar Aza along with her three children, Ofri, Yuval, and Oria. A few weeks ago in Tel Aviv, their father told me he was eager for any sort of swap with Palestinian prisoners. So do the swap. Whatever swap they want, do it. You know, just do everything. Just right. do everything just for this. You know, my family's there. It's been over three weeks. Just do everything for my family. They're over there. I really want my kids to, you know, to be right here. And, you know, I want Yuval to play soccer and Uriah to play in his Xbox and, you know, Ofri to play her guitar and my wife to be with me. Another family that was released, the Goldstein Almog family. Chen Goldstein Amog was kidnapped along with three children, Agam, Gal, and Tal. Her husband Nadav and eldest daughter Yam were killed in the safe room of their home in Kibbutz Kfar Aza. I spoke to Chen's brother Omri when I was in Israel a few weeks ago. It's, it's a difficult situation, but we, we fight and I need the world, somebody need to help them to make it back yeah. from Gaza Strip back to Israel. They cannot do them this. They, they cannot do it themselves. After the Goldstein Almog family safely returned to Israel, Omri revealed that the family knew all along that their loved ones hadn't made it. I'm very happy to inform everybody that uh, my sister Chaya Goldstein Almog and the three kids, Agam, Gal, and Tal, are uh, back to us and they're feeling good and they're well. And they knew the whole time that uh, Nadav and Yav murdered the house and they go, uh, uh, they went to Gaza as uh, hostages, they kidnapped with this idea, and we're very happy to have them uh, healthy and good spirits. And we're just getting in the very first images of the Goldstein Almog hostages reuniting with their family members at the Schneider Children's Hospital outside Tel Aviv. Hugs, smiles, tears, speak volumes. We hope this scene repeats itself many, many times over until all the hostages, all of them are freed. Even with more releases today, Hamas is still holding more than half of all the hostages taken on October 7th. A father looking for an inkling of word about his son will join me next. Plus, the lone Russian released by Hamas, how he once managed to escape captivity and roam Gaza for full, four full days before being recaptured. 
Desperate families in Israel are waiting to hear if their loved ones might be among the next hostages released, including my next guest. His son, 22-year-old Omer Wenkert, was taken hostage when Hamas attacked that Nova Music Festival in southern Israel. Shai Wenkert joins me now. Shai, thank you so much for being here. Your son, Omer, we should point out, suffers from a chronic medical condition. Have officials given you any updates uh, on his condition, on, uh, on how he might be doing? Uh, thank you, Jake. No, we didn't have any information. My son is uh, 52 days as a hostage at the Hamas. Uh, I don't know if he is getting any medical aid or any medicine. Uh, the chronic disease is getting uh, severe when you are in a stress situation like, uh, like probably he do. And uh, this is unfortunately... Um, it's a worst case that I can think about, that he's not getting any medical aid and the Red Cross supposed to go inside tomorrow as the part of the deal. And I don't know, I didn't get any information from the Red Cross or any other healthcare that are going to go inside to visit the hostages or maybe to give them uh, some medicine that he needs and uh, to bring a sign of life. This is what I want. Yeah, I think the part of the deal that is supposed to go in the next few days, I demand that they carry the all sick people and also my son is inside, take them out. The sick people are not have to. They can't stay there. Yeah. They can't stay there anymore. We saw as we saw uh, one hostage that uh, came out, Elma Avraham. And uh, she was, uh, she is in a hospital in a very serious and bad condition. So I don't want to think about my son in this situation. We need to take all the sick people out, everyone. Yeah, it must be very painful um, for the family members of, of uh, men, uh, young men, especially um, given the fact that obviously they are prioritizing older people, women, uh, and children, understandably so, um, but but the love you have for your for your son is uh, is very apparent. Yeah, we are, I welcome all the hostages that they release. It's very uh, helpful for the families to give them uh, more strength. Uh, some of them are combined that uh, a, a boy went out, but his father still is a hostage. I can't imagine what he can feel about it. This is horrible things. And again, I demand to take all hostages out. And first, we have to do with the sick people. They are yeah. lying down underground probably, and we don't know anything about them. If they are getting treatment, if they are getting any medicine. And Shai, you first learned uh, about Omar being taken hostage by Hamas uh, from a video that was shared on social media. Uh, I'm going to show it uh, with your permission. Uh, I want to warn our viewers that the video is disturbing. Uh, your son is visible uh, in the video. He's in the back of a pickup truck. Um, he's been stripped of his underwear. He's surrounded by uh, these terrorists, these armed men. They're repeatedly beating him. Um, that must have been horrifying to see uh, when you saw that. Although at the same time, you do see that your son is alive. 
it's horrible to see my son like this. He's uh, handcuffed only with underwear. He's getting beaten. He's uh, slaughtered, and uh, they pointing a gun at him. I don't. It's horrible to think about it. Uh, yes, I can see my son is alive. He's kidnapped uh, in uh, in this uh, SUV of the Hamas. Uh, he's alive. He's looking uh, at the camera. I have also a photo that is uh, only with the uh, underwear handcuffed on uh, sandbags that's supposed to go to the Palestinian refugees. Yeah. But the Hamas uh, do a, a terror act and take all the, the action. So this is horrible. I know my son is alive from the video, but since then, I don't know nothing. Yeah. I don't know nothing. I don't want to think that my son will be the next body that comes out from Gaza. Well, let's not let's not think about that. Let's hope let's hope for the best. What what, what should people know about Omer? What what do you want people to to think about when they think about Omer? Because we, I don't want to think about that image when I think about Omer. I want to think about what you tell me about him right now. What, what what do you want when I think about Omer tonight? When I go home, what do you want me to know about him? First, you can see most of the photos. He's a very smiley guy. He's twenty two years old. He's the manager of a restaurant, and uh, this is a, a career he wants to do. He also needs to study about uh, restaurant management. He's a very friendly. It's like it's like a human magnet. Everyone wants to be around him. He has a lot of friends, and he do friendship very easy. He's doing also. He went to the youth group. We have in Gedera, Maccabi Tsair. So he, he likes the good life. And this is how I want uh, people know Omer. He likes to go to chef restaurants. He likes to go to parties, music, to drink some wine. And uh, this is how I want uh, people to know Omer. He's a very handsome guy. Mm. And he's marvelous. I miss him a lot. I didn't see him for four, 52 days. It's... It's unimaginable, unimaginable. Well, you know what? And I want everybody to imagine that Omer is coming home. The very so first this person. make me more happy and more faithful. Shy, the very, first person, the very first person I interviewed who had somebody kidnapped was a woman named Renana Yaakov. I interviewed her on October 8th, and her two sons were returned today. Her two sons were returned to her today. And let's hope that that will be you. That will be you soon enough. Shai Venkert, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much. I have to ask you from the reporters and all the media, we have to keep uh, doing the, um, the mission that the hostage need to be on the front page. We are very happy for the release of the hostages, but we still have 160 hostages yep. that are still Shai, you're on my show right now. You're on my show. You're on my show right now, Shai. I know. I know. You're on right now. You're live on international TV right now. I'm not stopping. Don't worry. Coming up ahead, some how some Palestinian prisoners were held in custody without ever being charged with a crime. How did that happen? Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. 
quiets their snores, Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And we're back with our world lead. 33 more Israeli-held Palestinian prisoners are expected to be released today in exchange for the Israeli hostages that is on top of the 117 Palestinian prisoners who have already been freed and part of this pause between Israel and Hamas. Some of these individuals were convicted in a court of law for criminal acts, such as, for example, 38-year-old Isra Jabis in 2015. Israel sentenced her to 13 years in prison. She had been convicted in a court of law of attempted murder when she drove up her car and with gas canisters, her car blew up at a checkpoint and the explosion wounded a police officer. She was accused of yelling Allahu Akbar. She denies it, but the police officer was wounded. But then there are also a host of Palestinians who have been freed who had been denied even basic due process, such as 17-year-old Wassam Tamimi, he was arrested by the Israel Defense Forces in June, accused of offenses including possessing a weapon, but he was never even charged. He sat in prison for five months. And as CNN's Nim al-Bagher reports, Israeli law actually allows Palestinian prisoners to be detained indefinitely without a trial or even a charge. The moment a mother finally sees her daughter for the first time after eight years in an Israeli prison. The relief, the anguish, the utter joy. <laughs> Melek Salman was part of the first wave of hostage prisoner exchange between Israel and Hamas. It was painful because I was leaving the sisters I made inside prison and I feel like my freedom was paid for with the blood of the 14,000 Gazans killed. Melek, then 16, was charged with an attempted stabbing of Israelis. Israeli authorities say no one was injured, and yet she was convicted of attempted murder and sentenced to 10 years. When her family appealed, it came down to nine. Melek served almost eight of those seven years, spending the remainder of her teenage years behind bars. Her family maintains her innocence. Fatina, Melek's mother, had dreamed of this day for years, to embrace her daughter, to share that joy with her community. She says this was denied. The Israeli authorities were with us from 2 p.m. They surrounded the house and ripped down the decorations of any display of celebration. They stole the joy of my daughter's release. To be released doesn't mean you are fully free. Israeli National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir who was himself found guilty in 2007 before he was a minister of incitement to racism against Arabs and supporting a terror organization. Ben Gavir instructed Israeli forces to use an iron fist, preventing Palestinians from celebrating the release of their loved ones, saying the prisoners 
were terrorists. Expressions of joy or support for terrorism, celebrations of victory give strength to those same human scum, those Nazis. The policy here is very, very, very clear. Not to allow these expressions of joy and resolutely strive to make contact and stop any support for these Nazis. Another night, another scene of Israeli forces removing well-wishers and journalists at the home of a released Palestinian prisoner, taking a heavy-handed approach as ordered by their national security minister. In Bethlehem, in the occupied West Bank, they were able to defy Ben Gavir, celebrating the release of Fatma Shaheen and others from the city. Fatma left her home walking, and returned almost seven months later with life-changing injuries, shot by Israeli soldiers and accused of attempted murder. They accused me of carrying out a stabbing. It's not true. They opened fire on me. I was hit in the spine with two bullets. Two vertebrae were damaged. They replaced them with titanium. I cannot feel my legs or stand up. They also removed five centimeters from my liver and one kidney. For months, Fatma's family say they were denied access, even as her detention stretched on. It was forbidden for my relatives to visit me, or even the lawyers. I was not allowed to make any calls. Israel says Fatma attempted murder, and yet she was only detained, not charged. She didn't go to trial. She wasn't given any opportunity to defend herself. And this is a story we keep hearing again and again from released prisoners, that they aren't given due process, and yet this crime exists alongside their names. The Israeli prison service responded to these allegations, saying national security prisoners who were released from the Israeli prison during the past two days were serving time for serious crimes, such as attempted murder, assault, and throwing explosives. All prisoners in IPS custody are held according to the law. That's not true. CNN broke down the numbers in a list of 300 Palestinian prisoners identified by Israel as eligible for release. 80% are listed as just detained, which means they have not been formally sentenced. Israel operates two systems of law in the occupied territories. Palestinians under the military, Israelis under civil law, creating a low bar for the arrest of increasing numbers of Palestinians. And as Israeli hardliners like Ben Gavir and others in this far-right government seek to characterize every Palestinian as a terrorist, that number is rising every day. The Israeli Defense Force didn't uh, respond to our request for comment. But the numbers speak for themselves, Jake. That was just a very small sample that was released by Israel's Department of Justice. But the number of Palestinians who have been swept up into Israeli jails within the last two, three months are almost at 9,000. And if Fatma and Malek are, are, are any give us any kind of insight into what those other thousands of Palestinians are going through. There is a real concern that there is no distinction between a Palestinian and a terrorist in the way that Israel chooses to um, apply its law to them, its martial law. Jake. Nim Al-Bagar in East Jerusalem, thank you so much for that report. Coming up next, the Hamas relationship with Vladimir Putin that seems to have led to the release of one man among so many women and children who are being released. Stay with us. 
And we have some breaking news for you now. A military helicopter just took off from the Karim Shalom border crossing. That's at the intersection of Israel, Gaza, and Egypt. That's where we find CNN's Jeremy Diamond. Uh, Jeremy, walk us through uh, what you're seeing there. Well, Jake, over the last hour, we have watched as three helicopters landed at the Karim Shalom crossing. We then got confirmation that those uh, 11 uh, Israeli hostages did indeed come into Israel via that Karim Shalom crossing. It appears directly from Gaza. And moments ago, we just saw helicopters taking off. Uh, we saw one helicopter take off from Karim Shalom and heading in the direction of Tel Aviv. We know that those 11 hostages are heading to Echilov Hospital in Tel Aviv tonight. And we believe that that one helicopter was likely carrying those hostages. We are still watching to see if two more do take off. But it was quite the scene, Jake. All right, Jeremy Diamond, thank you so much. So far, the hostages released uh, by Hamas have primarily been women and children, with an exception of 25-year-old Roni Kravoy, an Israeli-Russian. As CNN's Fred Plekin reports for us now, Hamas cites the intervention of Russian President Vladimir Putin and, quote, the supportive Russian position for the Palestinian cause. Israel is rejoicing over the hostages released in the prisoner swap with Hamas, almost exclusively women and children. Only one military-aged male Israeli has been set free so far. Roni Krivoy, pictured in this Hamas video, showing the exchange with the Red Cross. Krivoy is also a Russian citizen, and his brother thanked the Russian government for making the release happen. We see what Russians can do. They helped us, and we believe that they can help others too. Rani Krivoy's aunt told Israeli media that he escaped his captors after the house he was kept in was bombed, but that he was apprehended by Hamas again after four days. His release now was not part of the larger prisoner swap agreement between Israel and Hamas. It happened thanks to Moscow's good relations with Hamas's leadership, Russian officials say. His release was possible following direct, intensive contacts between our diplomats and Hamas representatives, Russia's ambassador to Israel says. After Hamas's October 7th assault on southern Israel, killing more than 1,200 people and leaving more than 200 in captivity inside Gaza, much of the world condemned Hamas, but not Russian President Vladimir Putin. Instead, the Kremlin invited a high-level Hamas delegation to Moscow for talks. And Putin has ripped into Israel over its military response to Hamas's raid, which has killed and wounded many people across the Gaza Strip. Putin even comparing his invasion of Ukraine to Hamas's war against Israel. I understand that this war with Ukraine, death of people, must be shocking. But what about the bloody state coup in Ukraine in 2014, which was followed by the war of the Kiev regime against their own people in Donbass? Is it not shocking? What about the elimination of civilians in Palestine, in Gaza? For its part, Hamas clearly views Moscow as an ally. Hamas leaders making clear Russian hostages captured on October 7th will get preferential treatment and have good chances of getting released faster. This request from Russia, we treat more positively and attentively than others due to the nature of our relations with Russia. 
And Jake, so far, the Russians have not said how many Russian citizens are still being held by Hamas. However, they have said that the Russians that are still being held are also dual Russian-Israeli citizens. So in this case, those good relations that the Kremlin has with Hamas are actually quite beneficial to the Israelis. At the same time, though, you do have Vladimir Putin ripping into Israel, at the same time also ripping in the, into the U.S., saying essentially he believes the U.S. needs instability in the Middle East to dominate the place. Jake? Fred Pikin, thanks so much. Coming up next, the court appearance today in Vermont. For the man, the police say shot three innocent college students. Stay with us. Three Palestinian college students went out for a walk in Vermont. They were wearing their kafiyas. They were speaking Arabic and English. They were shot, shot before they could even make it home for dinner. All three remain in intensive care as investigators today are looking for a motive as CNN's Polo Sandoval reports, this attack comes, of course, amid a horrific rise in anti-Muslim and anti-Arab incidents ever since this war between Israel and Hamas began. The Saturday evening shooting of three young Palestinian college students visiting Burlington on their holiday break was one of the most shocking and disturbing events in this city's history. After a shooting in Vermont left three young Palestinian men scarred forever, at least one of them still in critical condition, the suspect now charged with three counts of attempted second-degree murder. 48-year-old Jason Eaton was arraigned in Burlington this morning. He pleaded not guilty and is being held without bail. Upon knocking on one door, uh, the ATF agents were greeted by a man who uh, stepped out of the hall, out of the door towards them with his palms up at waist height and stated something to the effect of, I've been waiting for you. The ATF agents said, why is that? And the gentleman said in some substance, I would like a lawyer. The three victims, each 20 years old, are Hisham Awartani, a student at Brown University in Rhode Island who now has a bullet lodged in his spine. Kinan Abdulhamid, a student at Haverford College in Pennsylvania, was shot in the glute. And Tashin Ali Ahmad, a student at Trinity College in Connecticut, still has a bullet in his chest. Police say the students were walking down the street Saturday evening while visiting one of their relatives for Thanksgiving. They were uh, speaking in a mixture of English and Arabic, uh, which is, is their want. Two were wearing kafiyas, uh, and they had no knowledge of this individual, had not encountered him before. He stepped off a porch and produced a firearm and began discharging that firearm. Amid rising reports of targeted violence against Jews and Palestinians since the outbreak of the Israel-Hamas war, the shooting immediately prompted calls it should be considered a hate crime. I believe the families uh, fear that this was motivated by hate, that these boys were, these young men were targeted because the, uh, they were Arabs, uh, that they were wearing kafiyas. Um, I think that is our fear. Federal officials investigating whether it was a hate crime in the eyes of the law. Family of the victims say they thought their loved ones would be safe here. Kenan grew up in the West Bank, and we always thought that that could be more of a risk uh, in terms of his safety. And sending him here would be a, you know, uh, the right decision. And we feel somehow betrayed in that decision here. Having had an opportunity to speak with some of these family members today, they really did underscore that, Jake, which is that these young men left a conflict zone 
came to the United States to what they hoped would be the relative safety only to be shot in the street that you see behind me. And before we wrap, we should mention the Burlington police today did confirm that they have been able to establish a ballistic connection between the pistol that was seized in the suspect's home, which is the apartment that you see behind me, with the casings that were recovered from the street. So they have that piece of the puzzle in the bag. The next big challenge will be establishing whether or not this was an actually hate-driven crime. Absolutely disgraceful. Polo Sandoval, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Right now we are monitoring hostages being released from Hamas custody, believed to be on a helicopter right now, headed for a hospital in Tel Aviv. Our coverage continues right after this quick break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, another group of hostages held by the terrorist group Hamas is free and on their way back to Israel. Moments ago, the Israel Defense Forces released this video saying it shows the moment the 11 released hostages entered Israel this evening. We believe that the group is now on their way to hospitals where they will be reunited with their families. Almost all of those freed today were children, 18 years old or younger. Two of them, two of them we are very happy to tell you, are 16-year-old Or Yaakov and his 13-year-old brother Yagil Yaakov. On October 7th, on the very day, that horrible day that they were kidnapped, I spoke with their mom. Uh, on the phone, live, with you, listening. And she had been talking to, their, to her sons uh, as the terrorists went into her home. She was not in the home at the moment. And, and she told me that horrible story about hearing her sons being kidnapped by the terrorists of Hamas. This is October 7th itself. And here is some of that conversation we had that night. Lying on the phone, the door breaks. I heard um, terrorists speaking in Arabic to my teenagers and the youngest saying to them, I'm too young to go there. It was like, <laughs> like 16 and 12, so it was very, very hard to, to hear. And uh, the phone went off, the line went off. That was the last time I heard from them. Thank God, thank God that Or and Yagil are on their way back into their mother's warm embrace. Thank God. Along with 69, 69 other hostages who have been released over the past four days under this temporary pause. Israel and Hamas uh, confirm that they have agreed to extend this pause for two more days. We expect, we hope, another 20 hostages will be released by Hamas. CNN's Matt Chance is in Tel Aviv outside the hospital where we expect the newly released hostages to arrive soon. Matthew, what will happen 
when these civilians, mostly children, get to the hospital? Oh, well, they're going to be obviously welcome back um, here. Um, the hospital has released photographs of the special rooms they've prepared, each family, and there are a couple of you know, members of, of several families expected to be arriving here shortly by helicopter. will get their own room, so they'll get privacy, they'll get medical attention, and they'll get you know, psychologically assessed because the trauma, uh, as, as you were just talking about, the trauma for those girls, there's, 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 a, there's a mother and her two three-year-old twins um, that, are, that are expected to land here in the next few minutes as well. It is going to be absolutely enormous. And, and you know, to try and get a better understanding, Jake, of the ordeal these people have suffered inside Gaza. I spoke to a relative of some other Israeli hostages, former hostages, that were released on Friday in the first group uh, that were released, um, you know, kind of under this hostage deal, to try and get a sense from her about what her family went through at the hands of Hamas inside the Gaza Strip. Take a listen. Did she indicate to you if she was kept in a tunnel or in a cellar or in kept, a house? She was kept uh, in, in different and uh, different places. Um, she doesn't know exactly where it is because they took them from place to place. But they were all together. All of them, the three of them, were together all the time. But I can tell you that they ate, but they ate a lot of uh, rice. Uh, sometimes they they didn't have rice, so they ate only bread. It wasn't that they were eating, you know, fruit and vegetables and vitamins and whatever uh, things that you need. She told me that if you want to go to the toilet, you have to knock on the door. And only after one and a half hour, two hours, they open the door and you can go to the bathroom. They weren't beaten or tortured. They got, uh, they, they, they were in a closed uh, room. They weren't with them. The, the room was locked. And they were by themselves, and that's it. Yeah. And Let sometimes... me ask you about Ohad briefly, because one of the images that's, that I remember most is when he was handed over to the Red Cross by Hamas gunmen, and he was being held very tightly by, by one of those masked um, figures. You saw that picture. Yeah. What, when you saw that, what did you think? I saw their faces. They were so scared. They were also scared what uh, um, they told me that on the way with the ambulance, the people in Gaza just uh, were on the on the the car and they moved the car from play. You know, they they, they like they yeah, the why? and they had the, why because they don't like us. <laughs> they knew so that the hostages is in, yeah in an angry way of course. The 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 citizen or the whatever I don't know exactly. She doesn't know exactly. But she said that it was very, very scary. Very scary. The horror, the fear, the trauma. And of course, that trauma doesn't end here, Jake, for the hostage who were released. Because many of them are coming back into a world where friends, loved ones, neighbours are either missing or dead. And some of them don't even know that until they, they get back uh, uh, here uh, into these hospitals and, and, and they, they start that process of rehabilitation. All right, CNN's Matthew Chance in Tel Aviv. Thank you so much. CNN's MJ Lee is at the White House. Uh, MJ, John Kirby, the spokesman for the National Security Council at the White House, he told CNN that no Americans were in the fourth group of ho uh, hostages being released today. 
When does the White House believe that the nine Americans uh, held by Hamas might be released? Yeah, Jake, to state the obvious, the White House is very disappointed that Americans did not end up being released today. Uh, they had said, of course, that three Americans would be among the 50 initial group of women and children hostages to be released over the course uh, of four days. Uh, one of them was Abigail Adan, who we saw released yesterday, and then two additional women. But day four of this truce has now come and gone. And no additional Americans released so far uh, and nothing we can say so far about the condition of these two women uh, either. But this is a big part of the reason, Jake, uh, why U.S. officials have been pushing for an extension of this truce. Uh, we are told that senior White House officials had at least four uh, phone conversations earlier today with the Qatari prime minister. Uh, CIA director Bill Burns was closely engaged. Of course, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan was keeping the president apprised uh, the whole time as negotiations were ongoing to extend this truce. But we are about to learn in the next 48 hours or so whether these two American women will end up being a part of the 20 additional women uh, and children that will be released over the course of two days. And that's, of course, separate from these seven other unaccounted Americans as well. They are men, but their conditions we also know nothing about, Jake. All right, I'm Jay Lee at the White House for us. Thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss the former Secretary of Defense under President Trump, Mark Esper. Secretary Esper, after this pause ends, which it will, um, do you think, do you expect Israel to resume its airstrikes, uh, which have drawn so much international outrage because of the collateral damage, the innocent civilians that have been killed? And, and what is your assessment of how Hamas is using this time, this pause, to regroup and reconstitute uh, its ability to attack Israel. Sure, Jake. First of all, good to be with you uh, this afternoon. Look, I, I think they will resume the, their offensive operations. Israel, that is, will resume offensive operations. And I think, uh, look, they, they need to apply as much precision as possible to limit civilian casualties. Uh, the next phase likely will include a movement into the south, uh, southern Gaza, which is at this point more dense in terms of the civilian population. So it's going to be it's going to be more tricky. And look, they're the, the Hamas fighters have been pushed south as well. So it's going to be very difficult. I think they understand that they need to, again, act with more precision. Now, with regard to Hamas, uh, you know, clearly they're not releasing hostages for humanitarian purposes. Uh, they are, first of all, trying to win the narrative out there with regard to the media and the international, uh, the press, the, the global community. And secondly, they're using this time to reposition forces, to refit, to, to uh, rearm themselves and do all those things. So clearly they're going to gain a tactical advantage over the next few days or as long as this pause extends, and, and they'll use it to their means, to their, to their best purposes. Well, what tactical advantage are, are, are they gaining? I mean, Israel has a far superior military, right? I mean, Israel, I mean, obviously, they've, they've destroyed a lot of buildings and a lot of civilians have been killed, um, but th there's no military contest here, right? I mean, what, could, what, what advantage is Hamas gaining? Well, it, it'll be more difficult for the Israelis because, uh, first of all, the Hamas, the militants, will be allowed to rest and recuperate. Some will return to the battlefield after being, you know, stitched up, if you will. Uh, they will be able to fortify their positions. They will be able to create new fighting positions. Uh, they will be able to booby trap, better booby trap the tunnels underneath southern Gaza. I mean, there are a number of things they can do to make the fight more challenging for the Israelis. But as you point out, at the end of the day, the advantage is with uh, the, the IDF in this case. Even though it's going to be, you know, again, um, a, a ground fight, 
uh, on the ground in, in Gaza. On Sunday, two ballistic missiles were fired from Yemen toward a U.S. warship in the Gulf of Aden after uh, it tried to rescue a commercial tanker from a pirate attack. The missiles ended up landing, quote, harmlessly in the water, according to the Pentagon. What's an appropriate U.S. response, considering the Defense Department has not confirmed if the missiles were actually targeting the U.S. ship? Look, I've, I've been saying for uh, quite some time now that I don't think the administration's response has been sufficient with regard to attacks by Iranian proxies in Iraq and Syria and, and elsewhere. At this point in time, I think there have been over 70-some attacks by Iran's proxies, and we've responded four, five, six times. It's insufficient, and that's why it continues. And I, I don't uh, believe it's a coincidence that, um, that we, uh, we captured some Houthis who were trying to take over a ship, and all of a sudden two ballistic missiles are fired at a U.S. destroyer. Keep in mind, we did not respond to this, and we did not respond to the shooting down of one of our drones uh, by the Houthis as well. So I, I, these are more examples of a lack of response by the Biden administration. And I know they're concerned. They fear that if they do too much, it'll escalate. My argument is just the opposite. If they don't do enough, that the attacks will continue. At some point, they'll, you know, Americans will be killed, and that's when it will escalate. So I think, look, these militants, these terrorists, Tehran, they respond to a force, to people pushing back, and I think we need to do more of that. Former Defense Secretary Mark Esper, thanks so much for your time. I want to show you some pictures now as we go to break. Uh, it's a helicopter uh, containing the freed Hamas hostages, uh, helicopter landing uh, at Tel Aviv, uh, at Ichilov Hospital, uh, right outside uh, Tel Aviv. It's uh, a little bit after uh, 12 midnight in Tel Aviv and the hostages are going to the hospital where they will meet family members and also, of course, be checked out after more than 50 days in the captivity of a terrorist organization. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. Elon Musk, the world's richest man, got the VIP treatment today during a visit to Israel, which might be a bit surprising considering all the questions raised by his promotion of an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, not to mention all of his boosting of anti-Semitic accounts on X, formerly known as Twitter. But as CNN's Nick Watt shows us, Israeli officials, including the prime minister himself, went out of their way to roll out the red carpet. The world's richest man, taken by Israel's prime minister to a kibbutz, attacked by Hamas, October 7th. The terrorists infiltrated into the kibbutz itself. There were umbrella bearers. Musk took some pictures. The editor of a prominent Israeli newspaper calls this a PR visit, calls Musk a blatant anti-Semite, accuses Netanyahu of amoral sycophancy. The backdrop to this visit? Well, Musk recently replied, you have said the actual truth to a tweet espousing anti-Semitic tropes that Jews push hatred of whites and promote minority immigration to Western nations. That theory also espoused by the man who murdered 11 Jews at a Pittsburgh synagogue in 2018. Many accuse Musk of overseeing the descent of X into a cesspool of hate, particularly since October 7th self-described free speech absolutist, Musk bought Twitter, now X, for $44 billion. That investment is now in danger. There's an exodus of heavyweight advertisers over the hate. Musk has said claims he's anti-Semitic could not be further from the truth. Today, we could not reach him for comment, but Musk and Netanyahu had a chat live on X. They agreed on a lot. 
those who are intended motor must must be neutralized, uh, then uh, the the propaganda must stop, um, and then and then making uh, Gaza prosperous. And if if, if 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 that happens, I think it will be a good future. Well, I hope you'll be involved in it. And I'd love to help. Welcome to Israel, Mr. Musk. Uh, your visit means a lot to us. Israel's president implored Musk to help fight anti-Semitism. You have a huge role to play, and I think we need to fight it together. Because right. under the platforms which you lead, unfortunately, there's a harboring of a lot of old hate, which is Jew hate, which is anti-Semitism. We have to do whatever, we, whatever is necessary to uh, stop the... I mean, essentially, these, these, these people have been fed propaganda since they were children. We uh, in the Jewish faith believe in uh, repentance uh, and atoning for one's sins. Perhaps that's what's going on right now, but the proof will be in the pudding. We'll have to see what happens on his platform. Now, Elon Musk also controls Starlink, which is an internet satellite service, which makes him a key player in any conflict on this earth. Now, he wanted to provide the service to aid organizations in Gaza. The Israeli government wasn't happy, saying that Hamas would use it for terrorist activities. Today, an Israeli government minister posted that they had reached an understanding that Starlink would only be used in Israel and Gaza with the approval of the Israeli government. We have not yet confirmed that. Jake. All right, Nick Watt, thanks so much. Coming up next, my conversation with a mother who played video for Musk today showing the moment Hamas captured her son. We'll be right back. As 11 more hostages return to Israel this evening, so many, so many other families are waiting and hoping and praying that Hamas will release their kidnapped loved ones soon. That includes my next guest, whose son was, was wounded by Hamas on October 7th. Joining me now is Rachel Goldberg. Her 23-year-old American-Israeli son, Hirsch Goldberg-Poland, had his arm uh, partly blown off by Hamas terrorists on October 7th. He was in a bomb shelter. He remains a hostage in Gaza. Rachel, thank you so much for being here. I cannot imagine how painful the last 52 days have been. Um, you had the chance to meet with Elon Musk today. You showed him um, that video that captured that horrific moment uh, after uh, his arm was blown off, that video that, that Anderson Cooper um, showed you. Um, what did Elon Musk um, ha have to say after you showed him that video? I mean, he was obviously very, um, you know, it's very dramatic footage. They say a picture's worth a thousand words, a video is worth a million words. And, um, I think he he was really taken aback and just he was also just very surprised by the the fact that this took place while someone was at a music festival like he you know he was very sympathetic he was I I found him to be a very sympathetic person um clearly shaken and rattled by what he had seen there were um three other families that also shared their families uh stories um, he seemed genuinely concerned and um, and moved by what he was hearing. What has it been like um, for you as all these hostages have been released and most of them obviously have been women uh, and children or 
seniors, obviously not a lot of young men uh, have been released. Um, it must be awful. No, you know, it's actually funny. People keep asking that. The truth is we have become a family with so many of these, you know, hostage families that we were relieved when we were seeing these children coming out and these moms coming out and these elderly grandmothers, you know, the Holocaust survivor grandmother coming out. There was no sadness about that at all. In fact, if anything, I would say it was finally a whisper of relief within like this, like agonizing galaxy where we find ourselves. Uh, the only thing that's, that is concerning is that aside from Abigail Moore, the four-year-old uh, American girl who, you know, is an orphan now, the other American women, uh, Judith and um, Liat, have not been released. Um, and also, obviously, I'm worried about Hirsch, who's been, like, gravely wounded and is now disabled for life with missing a limb, uh, that, you know, I'm worrying about him. I'm worrying about Keith, who's a uh, a gentleman in his 60s. So like that's like a bit concerning, but um but there was no there was no ill feelings about these children and women coming out. Truly. Have you gotten any updates on Hirsch from any of the individuals that have gotten out any of the hostages who have been released? Unfortunately, no. We haven't. We haven't. They've been you know, the intelligence community, people are, are checking, are going gently, you know, through things with the, the people who've been released. Obviously, they've, they've gone through trauma. So, you know, everyone's kind of respecting the process. But the people who they have spoken to have not, they haven't, they don't know his name. They haven't seen anyone who didn't have a, an arm. So we're very worried. We're very, very worried. We feel like the clock is ticking. Time is ticking. Here is this extremely wounded young man, um, American civilian, and we're worried, like Rachel, any parent would be. Rachel, you obviously have much bigger concerns than just how nasty social media can be. But obviously, Twitter is a cesspool, or X, I guess it's called now. And Elon Musk, quite frankly, hasn't exactly been helpful when it comes to that. And I'm just wondering, especially when it comes to um, anti-Semitism, uh, not to mention anti-Muslim sentiment and, and all sorts of bigotry. I don't know if that came up today because obviously you have much bigger serious life and death concerns having to do with your son. Um, did it come up? It didn't come up. And, and to be honest with you, Certainly in the last 52 days, I personally have not followed news. I haven't, you know, been I wouldn't reading newspapers, watching yeah. anything. And I also, you know what? I'm a little bit old. So, like, I'm not a Twitter or X person. Rachel, or we're the exact same age. I don't even have Facebook. Rachel, we are the exact I know. same age. Cut so it out. So you're also old. Okay. In fact, don't put, throw me under the bus, Jake, because you're six months older than I am. <laughs> All right. Um, when Hirsch comes back... Uh, and you guys come to D.C., uh, please uh, yeah. allow me to throw you all a party. Um, I am, I'm, I'm, I'm putting that check on the line right now. Throw a big party, a celebration okay. of his return. I'm anticipating that happening, and I look forward to, to toasting his return with all of you when, when he comes back 
And when you come back to DC to visit, um, even though I've never met you, I'd look um, forward to Okay. All right, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. I would appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for the time. Take care. Coming up, a judge's decision today in a case that I have followed for years, a major development and some rare good news that you will see first here on The Lead. You won't want to miss it. It's next. I bring you now some rare good news in our Law and Justice lead. In October 2022, 13 months ago, I told you about C.J. Rice, a former patient of my pediatrician father, who my dad was convinced could not have committed a shooting crime in Philadelphia. C.J. was sentenced to 30 to 60 years in prison back in 2011. Now, the point of our segment and the cover story that I wrote for the Atlantic magazine was not only that CJ could not have committed the crime, but that CJ did not have adequate legal representation. So much so that I and my co-author argued it was a violation of the Sixth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution's guarantee to assistance by counsel. And today, a judge agreed. And C.J. Rice could very well soon be a free man. Could, could. Now, the basics of the story. Rice was shot in September 2011. Those, those are his scars you see right there. And after he was released, he saw his pediatrician, my dad, Dr. Theodore S. Tapper. And Rice could barely walk. And soon after that, days later, two young black men shot a separate family causing injury, but thankfully no deaths and no serious injuries. Rice was picked out as one of the shooters in a photo lineup. It seemed quite questionable. And remember, my dad had just seen Rice in his office. Take a listen. He had staples in his abdomen over approximately an eight or nine inch surgical incision from his breastbone straight down as far as you could go. There was no way this young man, five days after I saw him, was running anywhere, let alone walking fast. Now, after hiring an overworked, underpaid defense attorney of very questionable competence, a woman named Sanjay Weaver, Rice was convicted and sentenced to 30 to 60 years in prison for a crime in which no one was even seriously injured. Reading the trial transcript was maddening. Weaver made mistake after mistake. She has since passed away. Now, the habeas petition to, to release CJ from prison was filed by an attorney named Carl Schwartz, who I think my dad hired, but my dad refuses to confirm it. That's my dad. The petition specifically argued that Sanjay Weaver incompetently stipulated to evidence that provided a motive for the shootings. And she should never have stipulated that. Carl Schwartz filed that habeas petition in December 2002, 2022. And the wheels of justice spin rather slowly. On September 22nd of this year, the district attorney's office, which had charged CJ, they agreed with Schwartz. And then it went to a magistrate judge who on October 24th, Judge Carol Sandra Moore-Wells, she agreed and she ordered that 
habeas relief is warranted. And then it went to a different judge. And today, U.S. District Court Judge Nitsa Quinones Alejandro found that Rice's, quote, trial counsel rendered ineffective assistance. And she ordered that Pennsylvania needs to decide whether to retry C.J. Rice or to free him within 180 days. And now the Philadelphia District Attorney, Larry Krasner, has six months to decide whether they're going to retry C.J. Rice for this crime or to free him. A statement from Krasner's office today said they were pleased with the district court order vacating his conviction. Quote, this matter will now be referred to the DA's Sentencing Review Committee. We expect this matter to be finally resolved within the next several months. Remember, a division of the DA's office already ruled that CJ did not get a fair trial to begin with. And remember, no one was even seriously wounded in the shooting to begin with. My opinion, my opinion now, I'm only speaking for myself. Maybe it's time for public officials in Pennsylvania to right this wrong as soon as possible. Let me bring in Carl Schwartz and Amelia Maxfield with the Innocence Project, two of the lawyers for CJ Rice who helped get this case to this point. Carl, congratulations. Jake, your react- thank you. I mean, amazing work, you and Amelia both. Your reaction to the judge's decision. I know you've been, be- you've been begging me not to say anything through all these hurdles that we got through, but you, you, let, me, you let me say something today. Your reaction to a big decision by the judge. Well, we're overjoyed, Jake. Um, uh, it's 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 bittersweet because uh, C.J. Rice has spent twelve of what should have been the most promising years of his life, or among the most promising years of his life, in custody um, after a trial that was violative of the United States Constitution, uh, in which his right to counsel was abridged by ineffective performance. The the issue that we raised, the, the prosecution, to their great credit, um, agreed was uh, that, that the evidence or the quasi-evidence that it, it, it allowed in was massively dam- damaging uh, in what otherwise would have been an overall, in their words, weak case, uh, a, a case with one identification witness um, in which uh, and we know about the unreliability of identification testimony in which that witness on the evening of the incident yeah. indicated that she could not uh, identify the perpetrator. Even though uh, she'd when asked known by him. hospital officials. Yeah, even though she'd known him and police. for years and years and years. And Amelia, one of the points I tried to make in the article um, is this is so common. The, and, and thankfully, hopefully... We will see justice in this, and, and CJ will get out and be able to have some sort of life. Hopefully, hopefully, it's still up to Krasner and his team. But, but, how often do you think this kind of case happens? Unfortunately, it's all too common. Um, Jake, uh, wrongful convictions can be contributed to a number of causes, and the leading cause is eyewitness misidentification. Um, ineffective assistance of counsel has been estimated to contribute to one in five exonerations in this country, which is um, a pretty shocking statistic. And that's only speaks to cases where someone is exonerated. Yeah, Amelia, the, the work you do at the Innocence Project is so, so important. Carl, um, you know that tappers are not patient people. Um, and I inherited that from my father. Um, 
And neither uh, of you are. No, neither of us. Neither of us are patient. We didn't get that gene. But let me ask you. He's he's going to be let out, right? I mean, like he's going to be let out. Like the district attorney's office has already ruled that he didn't get a fair trial. But the DA's like there's this whole procedure now that we're going to have to go through. Um, and it's going to take they have six months and it's probably going to take at least one to three. Why don't they just let him out? Like they've already acknowledged. Jake, it is it is a reasonable procedure. And and as, as anxious as I am to have CJ released and he should be released yesterday. Um, this prosecutor's office is different than a lot of them in this country. They, they truly seek justice. The position they took on this case uh, was the right uh, position. And many other prosecutors' offices wouldn't have. And that kind of blind, you know, blind adherence to a conviction, to a bad conviction, breeds disrespect for the law. This office operates differently. And I'm not here as a cheerleader for the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office. Lord knows I take positions against them every day. But they, they genuinely try to do the right thing and it, it inspires respect for the law. Uh, it, it, it truly does. And it's a different world uh, when, when that's the case. Credit, credit where it's due. I hear you. Credit where it's due. Because most prosecutors, as, as, as long as you know, they stick by a conviction, even they don't even want to look at it. So I hear you. I hear you. Carl Schwartz, Amelia Maxfield, thanks to both of you. And we will keep you updated, viewers, when CJ gets out. You better believe I'm going to be there with five cameras. We'll be right back. In our Law and Justice lead, former President Donald Trump continues the fight against a gag order in his New York civil fraud trial, telling an appeals court today that criticizing the judge is his First Amendment right. The judge in that case, Arthur and Gorin, first imposed the gag order to prevent Trump from making any statements about him and his court staff, specifically his clerk, after Trump posted a baseless social media allegation involving the judge's principal law clerk, Trump's team today arguing Trump has never threatened the judge or his principal law clerk and can't be held responsible for actions taken by others. But others did take action, as they almost always do. Trump's remarks resulted in hundreds of threats and smears against the judge and his clerk. A court officer captain signed a sworn statement saying that the threats are, quote, considered to be serious and credible and not hypothetical or speculative. The court filing transcribed multiple voicemails left on Judge Engeren's phone. We want to show you just two examples, a warning you might find some of it disturbing, of course. Some of you might like it based on my social media these days. Uh, one voicemail said, quote, filthy little Jews, and that's you, and I hate that word, and I hate putting people under group, but you are filthy little Jews. I mean, honestly, you should be assassinated, unquote. Another said, quote, dirty Jews, and I love Jewish people, but there's dirty Jews like you. You guys want to make it all about identity, and you know what? What dirty Jews and stupid go die, I hope you all die, unquote. Let's talk about this. Um, so Jonah, Trump's team today, argued his threats to the judge and his law clerk do not justify a gag order. I know you're a First Amendment guy, but what do you think? Yeah, so uh, Trump's lawyers argue that this is unprecedented, and they're right. It would be unprecedented to do a gag order. It'd also be unprecedented for a guy with 91 indictments or charges against him. Um, still running for president and saying these kinds of things, never mind a former president, saying these kinds of things about a judge. So it's a great example of how hard cases make for bad law. 
Um, I think a lot of this is just sort of a preamble to the criminal stuff where he has to try this stuff in court of opinion and intimidate witnesses and all that. I don't think there are any great answers here, though. Uh, Nayara, separately, the D.C. appeals court could rule at any time on a gag order on Trump's election subversion trial. Um, let's say that one or both of these gag orders are imposed against the former president. We're less than 50 days away from the Iowa caucus. You know, how will those headlines play with voters? The idea that he has, you know, gag orders against him. Oh, he has such a vast lead in the Republican primary and the Republican Party right now is the party of obstruction, the party of uh, the lack of democracy, uh, you know, my freedom versus yours. So it plays perfectly well with those primary voters, but it does do two things to our democracy. It turns away people from actively participating, uh, whether as voters or to become election officials or to become judges. Public service becomes a danger when candidates like Trump are allowed to get away with this. And it also erodes the credibility of our democracy when justice is not swift, when a bureaucracy is used to stop the wheels of justice from holding the president accountable. And we all know that no one else would be able to get away with what President Trump has been saying or in flouting the rule of law. Well, the other thing is it works, right? I mean, it works. And he knows it works. Um, in this, and it's his best option, given the reality of a lot of these cases. So this book um, that McKay Coppins wrote about Romney, that one Republican congressman reportedly told Romney he wanted to vote to impeach Trump about January 6th, but he declined, quote, out of fear for his family's safety. A Senate leader was also discouraged from voting to convict for the reasons of personal safety. I mean, it's not... That, I mean, he knows what he's doing. Right? Yeah, we I want mean, people yeah. to be leaders, but we're not necessarily giving them the protection or the safety of security of support. And that's what Trump takes advantage of time and time again, is being the bully that no one is properly challenging. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the fundamental problem for six years now, take away the threat stuff and all that, is that Trump's superpower is shamelessness. He does not care about the norms. He does not care about tradition. He does not care about decorum. He cares about weaponizing anything that was useful for him to weaponize. And... Um, so I don't blame some of these senators. I mean, imagine if you were hanging around on January 6th and you had that memory fresh in your mind, you hang Mike Pence and, you know, who knows what kind of voicemails he got. I can see people sort of buckling and, and chickening out about voting to impeach and remove Trump. Um, I think it was a, almost textbook cowardly, but I can also understand it. Then there's, then there's other lessons from January 6th. Uh, uh, Utah's other Republican senator, Mike Lee, uh, a few days ago, um, there were the, you know, Speaker Johnson released some of these uh, other images from January 6th, and there was a guy who took out a vape, and uh, I think there were like people saying, oh, that's a badge, and it shows how some of the rioters were actually undercover feds. Mike Lee was suggesting it was a badge, and people were like, no, it's not. It's a vape. Yeah, Mike Lee's on a bit of a journey these days. Um, and he's sort of he's sort of been red-pilled by Trump world in a way that I find really disappointing and shocking. And but. we're seeing a record number of resignations from Congress of people not looking to run for office again, either because the money, it costs too much, or because of this political environment. So something needs to change. But then there was also uh, Fox had that wrong information about what happened on the Rainbow Bridge. And then Benny Johnson quoted Fox, and then Ted Cruz quoted Benny Johnson, this turducken of false information. <laughs> and nobody even takes it down from Twitter. Well, you'd have to have regulations in place and people in power who understood how these platforms work. In order well, to it's not, you don't need regulations. Let's not disparage the noble turducken. <laughs> you don't need regulations. You just need, you mentioned it before, shame. Yeah. And anyway. It's missing. Good to see you guys. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. The casket 
carrying the remains of former First Lady Rosalind Carter has arrived in Atlanta, Georgia. The former First Lady will lie in repose for the rest of the day. And tomorrow, former President Jimmy Carter is expected to attend a private tribute service to her, which will be televised. President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden will attend, as will former President Bill Clinton, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and former First Ladies Laura Bush, Michelle Obama, and Melania Trump. Our coverage of Rosalind Carter's memorial service will start tomorrow at noon Eastern. I will be anchoring that. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer, who is in the situa Situation Room live from Tel Aviv. I'll see you tomorrow at noon Eastern. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.